Well, good morning. My name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church and happy Independence Day weekend. Because it's not, it's not you, you, you can clap for Independence Day. Sorry. You, can, you can clap. You, some of you are like, do I clap right now? I don't. Um, so it's not necessarily Independence Day, but it is Independence Day weekend. Tomorrow is Independence Day. However, last year at this point in time, we, it was actually the 4th of July on Sunday. And so we actually preached on Independence Day. Um, and, and we actually uh, had a similar message. I went back and looked and, and have been kind of praying over what the Lord wants to say this morning. And as you will see, it's a very similar message. Um, so 246 years ago, we as a nation declared our independence from Britain's rule and reign, and independence has now become almost synonymous, especially in our nation, with freedom. You ever thought about that? The term independence and freedom, most people, maybe you're even thinking the same thing, like it means the same thing, right? This morning, I want to show you that they are not the same thing. See, this sinful world fuels this deep sense of self above all else. Like, look out for number one, right? Self-reliance, self-significance, independence. That's the way to freedom, right? Like, then nobody can hurt you. Nobody can even get to you. You know, safety comes to those who hide behind that raised fist of resistance. Right? Because independence equals freedom. The trials and traumas of this world teach us that submission, obedience, reliance upon anyone other than yourself are all the toxic tactics used by corrupt authorities to manipulate and oppress. So, so, so don't let anyone, don't let anyone in. Right? Make sure you're in control of your life. In fact, do your best to control everyone else around you. Then you'll be really safe. Problem is, then you become the tyrant over your own little kingdom. Because that sinful toxicity lies in your own heart as well. Now, when applied to fallen and sinful humanity, independence from sinful power is a good thing. Amen? You can amen to that. It is a good thing. One of the founding mottos of the American experience, uh, or excuse me, the American experiment was and should continue to be trust in God, right? It's even written on our money. If you look at your dollar bill, it says trust in God, not me, dummy, right? I feel like dummy should be added on there. I might have added that myself, but like it should say trust in God, not in money. Like George Washington himself rejected calls for his own supreme power as king by setting the standard limit for himself and all who would follow him to a two-term presidency instead of a lifetime as king. And he did that precisely because there is only one truly good king. His name is Jesus. So while independence from sinful power is a good thing, independence from Jesus as king doesn't bring freedom, it only brings slavery. When people rebel against King Jesus, they become the very arbiters of the spirit of oppression that they claim to liberate others from. Because the declaration of independence from God Almighty is the affirmation of enslavement to absolutely everything else. True liberty only comes when the true Savior and the true King sits on the throne of your heart. 
True freedom, true peace, true security can only come to those who are in true dependence upon Christ alone. So when Jesus is on the throne of your heart, when you're willingly, joyfully trusting in him, relying upon him, depending upon him, submitting to his mission and his purpose, then and only then can you really be free to be who you were designed to be. So this time last year, we as a church were walking verse by verse through the book of Revelation in our series called Victory Unveiled. And last year, we celebrated the birth of our nation by looking at Revelation chapter 17, which pulls back the physical veil, revealing an image of what is actually happening in the world around us. Revelation 17 presents a vision that's not uh, just about the spiritual realities of the first century when it was written, nor is it about what will happen one day in a distant future just before Jesus returns to the earth. What we read in Revelation is a vision describing the spiritual realities at work both then and now. Both then in the first century and now in the 21st century. And the vision unveiled in Revelation chapter 17 shows us what spiritual slavery looks like by presenting a great prostitute who was unfaithful to her good and faithful husband. She seduces the kings of the world into a rebellious orgy of unfaithful independence from God, and she is fueled and propped up by the spiritual forces of this evil age that rage against the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. That's what we looked at last year. But she's not just an enemy. She's merely a tool of the enemy. She's used and she's abused and eventually devoured by the very power of the one who props her up. She's known as the whore Babylon. But this whore is stark, starkly contrasted and intentionally juxtaposed in Revelation with a pure virgin bride whose robe has been washed in the blood of the Lamb and presented to Christ the King in spotless gleaming purity. She is the church, the bride of Christ. She's the people of God. She's those who have been called out of the world and given a new name and a new identity in Christ Jesus. She is called faithful and she is called chosen and she is called beloved. This is who she is. She's the one who's been made pure. She's not one who is pure in and of herself. Her robe has been washed in the blood of the Lamb. In fact, the Bible's littered with this kind of imagery. Like the prostitute Rahab. Remember her and Joshua? Like she was redeemed and even grafted into the royal bloodline of Jesus. And so every one of us in here today is either represented by the great prostitute or the bride of Christ. And there's no in-between. So if you realize this morning, hear me, if you realize this morning that of these two, you're not represented by the bride of Christ, then my hope is that you will not leave here until she does. And that simply happens by surrendering to Jesus Christ, both as Savior and as King. Because you can't have him as Savior unless you also have him as King, right? Because outside of faith in Christ, we're all citizens of this rebellious harlot city. Outside of faith in Christ, we're all the whore Babylon. But in Christ... And because of his sacrifice, we are his spotless and beloved bride, citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So last year, we looked at Revelation 17 in our series, Victory Unveiled. But this year, 
We've been walking through the book of Colossians in our series called Firmly Established. And this year, we've come to Colossians 2, verse 6 through 12. And by God's providence, the same main idea that we preached last year of of the 4th of July sermon and text last year is the same as the one that we have this year. That wasn't by my design. It was by God's providence. And so because this vision, this is what I want to show you, because the vision that's given in Revelation 17 is the spiritual backdrop for what Paul's addressing in his letter to the Colossians. And so I want you to see that it is also the spiritual context in which we now live today. Okay? So here's what I want you to get this morning. If you get nothing else, this is what I want you to get. True liberty is found in total dependence upon Jesus Christ as Savior and King. Last year, the title of the sermon was Independence. Two words, get it? Ha <laughs> ha, But this year, the title of the sermon is True Liberty. True liberty is found in total dependence upon Jesus Christ as Savior and King. So let's look at how the spiritual seduction plays out in the life of the Colossians and how it continues to operate today. So turn with me to Colossians 2, verse 6 through 12, and let's kick it off by looking at the the key verse for our entire series through Colossians. Now first, a quick roadmap before we uh, dive in here, a quick roadmap for the rest of our time. First, we're going to start with our secure foundation in Christ, and then we're going to look at some of the enemy's tactics of seduction. And finally, we're going to close with how God's called us to live on mission in this dark world without compromising the truth. So three points, okay? Three points. One, we operate from victory secured for us, not out of an attempt to win victory for ourselves. This is a theme that we've already seen in Colossians, and we're going to see it over and over again, okay? And then two, our enemy's favorite tactic is to twist the truth. So we're not just called to resist, we're empowered to testify to what that truth actually is. And then three, People far from God aren't just the enemy, they are the mission. People far from God aren't just the enemy, they're the mission. Okay, turn with me, Colossians 2, and we'll we'll kick it off with verse 6. Again, this is our anchor point verse, Um, verse 6 and 7, here we go. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So this is the key passage, again, for our entire series through Colossians. It's all about being in Christ. Like You can't really understand any of the rest without understanding what that means to be in Christ. Without him, it's all not, none of it's going to make any sense. So it's all just going to either puff, puff you up in pride or cut you down in shame. The only way to have the security even to receive and grow and mature is by being rooted and grounded and firmly established in Christ, which then overflows in thanksgiving. So verse 6 begins with therefore. And whenever you see the word therefore in scripture, you should always ask, what's the therefore, therefore, right? And last week, uh, Rich Lee uh, did a fantastic job preaching the message. He brought the word last week and did a great job of explaining what the therefore here is there for, right? So he, he uh, walked through 
um, the passage just before this and did a great job. And so also I want to say, like, what a blessing to have such a solid team of leadership in our church. Amen? I, I got a chance to um, preach in uh, Williamsburg at a, a network church of ours called Grace Point Church there. And um, I really missed being here, but it was really comforting to know that you're in good hands, okay? And so uh, although I am glad to be home. So praise God for our church, and I am really thankful for the way that God it continues to raise up leadership, and, uh, and he's maturing us and providing more and more leadership in our church. And so praise God for that. Amen? So um, what is, though, what is the therefore, therefore? Okay, let's quickly look back at Colossians, the last two verses of the passage we looked at before. So verse 4 and 5, okay? Colossians 2 uh, verse 4 and 5. Verse 4 it says this, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So that sets us up this morning with verse 6, okay? So verse 6, therefore, say therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So he's warning them that the spiritual reality that surrounds them is filled with the seductive temptations and deceptions of the world. But he doesn't just tell them that they should be nervous or paranoid or filled with anxiety. That's not what he says. He gives them a very confident encouragement. He points them to the king that they already have, and he gives them an imperative. He says, walk in him. This is an instruction. It's a command, even. Right? Do it. Take action. Walk in him. But what does that mean? Well, verse 7 explains it a bit more. Okay? He's calling them to action. He doesn't just say, you know, it's dangerous and you have an enemy, but relax, you know, you prayed a prayer, so nothing, you else, nothing else you do really matters. You prayed a prayer a long time ago, so it doesn't matter what you do, just kick back, relax, all is, all is well. That's not what he says. He gives them an imperative to walk in Christ and explains it here in verse 7. In fact, Paul even mixes his metaphors here, which may be a bit frustrating for people who want a perfect image that they can dissect, Right? But I think Paul mixes his metaphors here so that we won't get bogged down in the imagery itself, but what the imagery points us to. He uses the metaphor of organic growth, which comes from nourishment and roots. And then he uses the establishment of a building upon a firm, unwavering foundation. And so the point is being that, uh, that the point is, excuse me, that being in Christ is something that we receive, trust in, and actively engage in. Psalm 1, verse 1 through 3, which is my son's life verse. We've prayed this over my, my child since he was, my oldest, since he was, a, um, since he was born, just before he was born. Um, and it says this, verse 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight, say delight, his delight is in the law. Of the Lord. Delights in the law? What? And on his law, he meditates day and night. 
He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Because all that he does is eternally significant because it's rooted in what God has to say. He sees the law as a beautiful, good thing, not a drudgery thing, not a like, oh, it's the law. Stupid law of God, I gotta do things. No, he's delighting in it because it's good. And so we see that true nourishment and strength comes from sending your roots deep into God's word and his presence. So the more rooted in his word and presence and his body, which is the church, the more established you'll be when difficulty comes and the more fruitful you'll be in the things that actually matter. That's what he's talking about. In Ephesians, Paul goes into great detail also on how Jesus is the cornerstone of a living temple, which is his church. So the cornerstone is like when you put a cornerstone in, it's what sets the paradigm for everything else. So you put a cornerstone in, and whichever way that cornerstone is oriented is how the foundation will be laid. Okay, And so in Ephesians, it talks about Jesus being the cornerstone upon which the apostles and the prophets are the foundation. So the foundation is the word of God. That's what the apostles and the prophets means. It's talking about the word of God, Old and New Testament. And so the prophets and apostles are the word of God, which is the foundation set upon the cornerstone, which is Jesus. And then the temple is built with living stones. It's all a metaphor, remember. And those living stones are you, and they are me. They are the people, the living stones built into a great house, a temple that houses the very presence of God. And what's it established upon? The Word of God and Jesus, the cornerstone. This is the metaphor that he uses. It's not the, it's not the building, is not the church, right? The people are the church. This is a metaphor. In Luke 6, verse 47 through 49, Jesus puts it like this. He tells a parable. And he says in verse 47, Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep. Say, dig deep. Who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. So the imagery is that of a house that, it's like the foundation is Jesus, but we live in a world that's constantly trying to fill it with this empty dirt. And we just, you clear it off, you dig deep into what matters, that's our foundation. And so it's, it's a victory that has been won for us, and yet it's one that we're also called to actively engage in, to be nourished, to rest in, to be nourished by and to depend upon, to actively dig into it, send your roots deep. He is our refuge, he is our strong tower, and he is our very present help in time of trouble. So this isn't just an anchor point for our series. This passage here is the anchor point for our entire lives. We're instructed here to dig into his word and his presence and to do it together as his people because this is the key to navigating the challenges of this fallen and seductive world. A world that's based on the shifting sands of society. And so we now, standing upon the foundation, the firm foundation of Christ, we don't just look at people and be like, ha, look at you, sucker. I'm on the rock. You're drowning. It's not what we're called to do. We're called to then testify to a drowning world 
to where our firm foundation actually is in Christ as we speak the truth in love. And we're told to do it all in thanksgiving, abounding in thanksgiving. We're not called to do it all begrudgingly and being like, oh man, this is difficult, this is dumb. Why do I have to deal with this difficult life? No. It says be thankful, abounding in thanksgiving. Why? Because that thanksgiving brings us true perspective. Because you're not swept away. You're not tormented by the torrent. We're not devoured by the darkness. We're firmly established in his love and his grace. And that testimony and that thanksgiving becomes our witness to a drowning world. This is the joy. This is the gospel that God became a man. This is good news. He lived the life we couldn't live, and he died the death we deserved to die. Then he conquered death in the grave, and he paved the way to eternal life. Relationship with God Almighty, an eternal life that doesn't just start one day when we die, but it starts the moment we place our faith and hope in Christ Jesus. We're filled with his Spirit. We're recreated to love what he loves and to look at him and view him and trust in him and his word rather than the opinions of this fallen and twisted world. So the encouragement here isn't to operate in an attempt to win victory for yourself. It's an encouragement to walk in the victory already won for you. Solid ground. You're not just treading water trying to get up and get you, keep your head above water. You are resting and digging in and establishing yourself upon the unshakable ground of Jesus Christ. And so regardless of your circumstance or what the Supreme Court and politicians decide, no matter what the Supreme Court ruling is, hear me, Jesus is king. And yet, this guy's heart is thankful for the ruling that just went down in overturning Roe v. Wade. Now I'm going to explain why that is in just a minute. P.S. It's got nothing to do with my political affiliation. And it's got everything to do with who my king is. Okay? We'll talk about that. So that's the first point. So our anchor point. Okay? First point, our anchor point. We operate from a place of victory secured for us, not out of an attempt to win it for ourselves. Verse 8. Look at verse 8. See to it. Say, see to it. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So he tells us to see to it, which is another imperative. There's action to be taken on our part here. So See to it so that no one takes you captive. So first of all, who's trying to take you captive? Well, those who are fueled by the deceitful traditions of men, according to the elemental spirits of the world, which is not according to Christ. Those are the shifting sands, those deceitful philosophies, even though they might sound good and even plausible arguments. It's not according to what Christ says, which is our firm foundation. So, even what, it talks about elemental spirits. Like, what is that? What are the elemental spirits of this world? That's a phrase that alludes to the demonic underpinnings of a fallen world in rebellion against its creator. This is what Revelation 17 is talking about. That seductive harlot. 
of society. That's what it's talking about. They are the spiritual powers behind the physical framework of this fallen creation that is in need of salvation. So I want you to see that these plausible arguments and these philosophies and these deceitful human traditions are fueled by more than just culture. It's demonic. If it's outside of Christ, it's demonic. And I want you to see this. Like This is why Revelation presents the prostitute as one propped up by the beast. So we'll see this even more in the next few chapters as we go through Colossians. And Paul also tells the Ephesian church in Ephesians 6 to intentionally suit up in the Lord. To intentionally do this so that we can stand against the schemes of the devil. So it's like he tells us to put on armor as we go on the offensive against the enemy, which this is very important. We are not necessarily just in defense. Like we're not just defensive, like hiding, like, oh no, don't let the devil get me. That's not the imagery that scripture gives us. The imagery that scripture gives us is that we are the ones on the offensive. We are the ones that are storming the gates of hell. And Jesus promises that the gates of hell will not stand against his church. It's different than the way most people perceive Christianity. Because a lot of Christianity is just sitting tight waiting for Jesus to come back. That's not how he speaks to his church and his people. His is a commission to go. Right? But he's not to go just as though it doesn't matter. Right? He's saying suit up. Be intentional. Be intentional in this action. Why? Ephesians 6 verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, over which Jesus has all authority and dominion. And he's given it to you, which is the Great Commission. Go, therefore making disciples of all nations and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. And so what are these things, these attacks as we go on the offensive? What are these attacks that are coming at us and trying to take us captive to? What are they? They're plausible arguments. They're deceptive philosophies according to human tradition and the elemental spirits of the world and not Christ. Which then leads me to the second point here. The enemy's main method of warfare is twisted truth. We aren't just called to resist, we're empowered to testify. So twisted truth sounds good on the surface. Right? Rich talked about this a little bit last week. Like it, it sounds even appealing at first. But in the end, it rejects Jesus as the good king. Like this world is full of those incremental deceptions. So how then can we see to it that we aren't taken captive by the devil's schemes, by these incremental schemes even? Well, first, we need to put on those gospel glasses of truth in order to see those schemes for what they are. So this morning, I want to take a little time and I want to address some of the controversial issues in our society that have been twisted by, well, demonically fueled human tradition that's not according to Christ. So there's an old practice called burning the king in effigy. Has anybody ever heard of this? Burning the king, you ever heard of that phrase? Burn the king, burning the king in effigy? So when people didn't like their king, they couldn't just storm the castle, right? He was king, he's too powerful. He'd just destroy everybody. 
So instead, they would attack the king's image in order to draw the rest of the kingdom into their own rebellion. So they would take an image of the king or an effigy, and they would hang it up for all to see, and then they'd light it on fire. And they'd celebrate the burning of the king in effigy. And as they burned the king in effigy, they would then invite or even seduce everyone else to participate in that rebellion as they declare their hatred for and independence from that king. So people who may not have even known anything about that king or even the issues that are happening or what he's even said, they would then get taken captive by all of those hostile festivities. I mean, if there's a riot in the streets and the king that they're rioting against, I mean, he must be a wicked king, right? He just swept up in the, the mob. Like, why is everybody so upset? I mean, they must be right. I mean, mob mentalities are always the most level-headed, right? So people would easily be taken captive to believe that this hostility towards the king and the burning of his image is actually a good thing. And in so many ways, this is exactly what's happening in our society and has been happening for thousands of years. Like the elemental spirits of this world have been provoking the carnal minds of humanity to wage war in rebellion on the image of God by burning the good king in effigy. And so it starts with a fundamental rejection of truth, which is the fundamental rejection of Christ's authority. So if truth has no meaning outside of subjective sentimentality, then every human is simply a law unto themselves, right? But what if truth is designed to guard against the lies? What if God's law is actually designed for human flourishing? What if it is something to actually be delighted in or something? What if he's actually good and has your good in mind? You see, when those hedges are dismissed, the father of lies is invited in. And when truth is hijacked by the shifting sands of subjective reality, the next thing to go is the meaning of love itself. And so the mob then chants, love is love, because truth is meaningless. So what, love, what is love? Well, love is love. And yet, according to 1 John 4, 8, God is love. And according to 1 Corinthians 13, 6, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. So, no matter how many times the worldly mob may shout, love is love, in an effort to justify that which God has called evil, it doesn't change the truth. It's only an attempt to seduce everyone else into that hostile rebellion as they burn the king in effigy. So the world's concept of love feels good in the moment because it's completely based on feeling and sentimentality, but it has no substance because feelings are fickle. So the love of God, though, invites us to experience the substance of his love, right? It's the substance because it gets directly, it comes directly from the source. So it's, we, we, we experience the substance of his love for one another. We get it directly from the source, which is what allows us then to love even our enemies. Because that's love. There's nothing fickle about it. That's not hate speech. That's truth in love speech. Amen? But once society distorts truth and love, all that's left is to set the image of God on fire and seduce everyone else to celebrate. 
And what bears the image of God in creation? Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Follow me. Male humans are not a full reflection of God in themselves. Neither are female humans a full reflection of God in themselves. There is something about masculinity that articulates who God is to creation. And there is something about femininity that articulates who God is to creation. It's by His design. And so when these two come together in covenant marriage, it full-on preaches the glory of God to the creation. You see this? It's beautiful. So it shouldn't be surprising then that covenant marriage has come under such attack in a world that's filled with elemental spirits who are literally hell-bent on riding or ridding this world or at least distorting anything that resembles the eternal God and king that they hate. Now, I want you to think about this. I want you to think about who God is. He is Trinity, right? Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This is who God is. Now, that means a lot. I don't pretend to have figured out everything about God Almighty. <laughs> okay? It's the Trinity. But what has been revealed to us is true and trustworthy. Okay? So follow me here. Here's what we know about who God is in the Trinity. As the Trinitarian Godhead. This is who He is. He is three persons in one nature. God is unity in diversity. He is oneness and yet not sameness. And so the way he's chosen to articulate this beautiful image is specifically through the diversity of male and female who have been fearfully and wonderfully knit together in their female mother's womb by God himself. Psalm 139, verse 13 through 14, King David writes this. He says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. And I love how abounding in thanksgiving David is there, right? Like he has to add that thing on the end where he's like, my soul gets this. Like this is coming from like the depth of who I am. He's abounding in thanksgiving. And he's a beautiful, sacred, and unique image bearers, beloved by God, even in the womb. Female, hear this, female is not better than male. And male is not better than female. Yet, we are also not the same. That's important. It's part of how God's articulating himself to the world. This is why sex within the sacred covenant of marriage is so amazing. Because it's worship. And the very Spirit of God is present in that as he breathes new life into a new image bearer through that worship session. Hello. So by design, it is beautiful and it is holy and it is good and it is sacred. But when it's twisted, it becomes toxic and it becomes tormenting. And it becomes a hijacked tool for the enemy. 
It's designed to articulate the beauty of our relationship with God to the world. Ephesians 5 even says that husbands, love your wife as Christ loves the church and laid down his life for her. Right, so it's none of this like he-man oppressive stuff. Like, he's calling us to serve and love and protect even at the cost of our own lives, much less our own egos. That's what servant leadership looks like. When we twist that into something self-serving, it then preaches a false gospel to creation. And so does a wife when she takes her husband for granted in disrespect. Again, it's no coincidence that every sitcom and commercial out there presents husbands and dads as bumbling idiots who couldn't tie their own shoes without their teenage daughter's help. You ever notice that? I hope you do now. It's everywhere. Right? And the reason for this is that it's all an attempt from elemental spirits that are fueling empty human deceptive traditions to destroy the image of God in society and preach a twisted gospel to our souls about who God is. God's just a, he's just a dummy. He, he can't do this. You need to make decisions for yourself. God needs your help. What? But that's what's spoken to our hearts. Abortion, homosexuality, racism, and gender, gender identity issues are just some of the invitations to burn the good king in effigy. Now hear me. Don't let the enemy twist this in your mind. Like if you've had an abortion or you struggle with any of these issues, please know that you are welcome to struggle with them here. I want you to get this. I want you to hear this. Please don't twist this into assuming things that are not true about God's people or his gospel. We are a community of sinners redeemed by grace. And so we consider it an honor. We would consider an honor and a privilege to walk with you in your journey, no matter what your struggle might be. Amen? You're not alone. You are who Jesus came to rescue. Hear me. People don't go to hell because they've had an abortion. People don't go to hell because they're gay. People go to hell because they haven't received Jesus Christ as Savior and King. Because we all stand condemned in our sin. This is the entire reason for the cross. None of us are good enough. All of us have sinned and fallen short, and yet he has declared our value in taking our place at the cross. So the distant sin is created between you and God has been bridged by the blood of Jesus. So no matter what you struggle with, no matter what your struggle has been or continues to be, you're welcome here. I want you to hear that. And you're welcome here because you've been welcomed by Jesus. The question is, will you receive his invitation? If you struggle with same-sex attraction, it doesn't mean you're damned for eternity. It simply means that you, like the rest of humanity, have a sinful nature that is in need of his saving grace. Now, you may not struggle with it for the rest of your life. But like all sin, it doesn't have to be your identity. You might struggle with it. You may or may not. I don't know. This is a part of his grace. If you're in Christ, your identity isn't in your struggle with sin. Your identity is in your Savior. You don't need shock therapy. You need grace therapy. 
See, there's an eternal difference between someone who says, I am gay, it's just who I am, and somebody who says, I struggle with same-sex attraction, but it's not who I am. Do you hear it? Do you hear it? That's why the temptation. You, hear, you can hear the harlot. You can hear the seduction in it. It's just who you are. It's how you were made. What? What? This world is filled with fallenness and craziness. Shifting sands everywhere. Like this is who Jesus is. Why we need the cross. It's not an identity. Your identity is not in your sin. It's in your Savior. Like who I am, if you are in Christ, who you are is a born again, blood bought, spirit filled and beloved child of the most high King, Jesus Christ. Period. And salvation doesn't come to those who are married with children. Salvation comes to those who receive Jesus as Savior and King. Okay? Again, that doesn't mean we don't struggle with sin. What it means is that we've been embraced by the one who empowers us with the victory that has overcome it. Just because you accept Christ as Savior and King doesn't mean you don't struggle with sin anymore. In fact, it likely means that you finally desire to struggle with it in the first place. So this is confession. This is repentance and belief. It's confessing what is true, that sin is what God says it is, and confessing your need to be saved from it. And repentance simply means turning towards God, looking to Him, identifying with Him, releasing hostility and asking for forgiveness and help. And He's so faithful. He's so faithful to meet you there. Belief then simply means walking it out. It's what we've talked about. It's what what Colossians is talking about here. Walking in Him. Walking it out. Walking in Him. Letting His Spirit change you from the inside out. Letting Him root and establish you in His Word and His presence. Giving you those gospel glasses to then see the seductive tactics of a twisted world. So this is how we walk in our redemption. So if Christ is your Savior and He's your King, then no matter what your struggle has been or currently is, you need to hear that His grace is sufficient for you. You need to hear that because of what He has done for you, there's nothing that you can do to make Him love you anymore, and there's nothing that you have done that can make Him love you any less. It's from that place of security that we're even able to see the wretchedness of our own sin. It's from that place of security in his arms that we can continually confess truth, repent of sin, and walk in belief with King Jesus. You see, this is how we, quote, see to it that we're not taken captive. Proverbs 3, verse 5 through 6, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Because he's king. He's not just savior. And when you begin to trust in him with all your heart, you'll realize just how good a king he is and how good he is at being king and how bad you are at attempting to be king. Because God's word defines truth. Not the traditions of men according to the elemental spirits of the world. Jesus is the word of God in the flesh, which brings us to verse 9 in Colossians 2. And it says, for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. (laughs) That's a powerful statement. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So human tradition or even personal preference doesn't hold weight in light of Christ's eternal authority. Now hear me. 
Hear me. It's a good thing that Roe v. Wade was overturned. Not because of human traditions, not because of personal preferences or political affiliations, but because of God's word and how it makes it clear that the autonomous God-given right to life begins in the womb. Proverbs 16, verse 17 lists the shedding of innocent blood as an abomination to the Lord, which are things that he hates because they defile the land. Now, it doesn't mean that there aren't difficult circumstances that arise. That's a part of a fallen world. We've got to recognize that there are extremely difficult scenarios, but we also can't allow those difficult scenarios to delude us into joining the demonic festival of destroying God's image for the sake of convenience or self-gratification. Difficulty does not mean abolition. Okay? So we do celebrate but we don't gloat like the world does. Remember, the American government is not God. Hear that. The American government, we like to say that, especially after that uh, Revelation series, you're like, yeah, we get it. America is not God. But the American government is not God. The Constitution is not the Bible. The president is not our pastor. The Supreme Court is not our directional board of elders. And the House and Senate are not our deacons. Hear me. I'm so thankful for our country. And I do believe that our system is the best system in the world, bar none. I very much believe that. But it's not perfect. Because America is not the kingdom of heaven. Okay? Which is why our heavenly citizenship is more important than our American citizenship. So when those twisted truths arise in our society, we aren't just called to resist them. We're also empowered to testify against them for what the truth is. So how do we do that? Because how we do that is important. Like, hear me, guys. <laughs> the list of abominations includes things like men not lying with other men as with a woman. End quote. It, it talks about cross-dressing. That's listed. Cross-dressing is listed as an abomination to the Lord. But those aren't the only kinds of sin that are listed as abominations. You know what else is listed? Arrogant hearts. Haughty, prideful eyes. Feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies. One who sows discord among brothers. Those are abominations to the Lord. That would include things like gossip. That would include things like slander. Right? Puffing ourselves up in pride at the expense of others while calling them out as an abomination is a real danger for the human heart. You got to hear this. It's easy to simply trade one abomination for another all in the name of speaking truth. But again, that doesn't mean we should cower. It doesn't, it's not saying cower instead of speak up. Like, that's neither loving or helpful. And in Revelation 21, 8, guys, hear this. God lumps cowards in with the faithless and the detestable. That's heavy, but it's real. Don't look at me. This is the Bible. Okay? So the key then, what, what, what are we to do? The key here is to speak the truth of Christ in the love of Christ, even to our enemies. It's almost as though he wants us to depend on him in the process or something. 
We've got to rely on him. We can't do this in our own strength. We've got to continually be sensitive to the spirit in discerning how to operate in this world. Again, it's not just a mission we've been sent on. It's a co-mission we've been empowered with. Okay? We are in chapter 2 of Colossians. (laughs) So the key here is to, again, speak the truth in love. And so the final point is that people far from God aren't just the enemy, they're the mission. People aren't, the people far, far from God aren't just the enemy, they're the mission. Remember, you can speak truth in a sinful way. So we're not just called by God to start raging against the machine of sinful society like jerks for Jesus, okay? Not just tearing down this shameful, sinful society one sinner at a time, just blowing up our own egos and self-righteous pride in the process. That's not what we're called to do. Listen, vengeance belongs to God alone because our egos are just not designed to handle it. Revelation 12, 11, it makes it clear. It says this, and they have conquered him, meaning the enemy, by the blood of the lamb, not by themselves, not their own strength, but by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. And yes, that's talking about physical death, but it's also talking about dying to yourself spiritually, dying to your carnal desire to just win the argument and be right rather than operate in righteousness. This is not easy to do, guys, and I don't claim to be the expert here, but I do know the one who is the expert, and he's given us his spirit. And so we need to be sensitive to his spirit and to look to him and when, not if, but when we fall short in exercising these things, we look to his grace, which is all sufficient for the process. And we thank him for it, and we glorify him in it, and we continue forward as we stand in conviction, not wallow in condemnation and shame. Okay? Psalm 51, verse 17, the last portion of it says this, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. But again, it doesn't say a cowardly heart, God will not despise. It says a, a, a broken and contrite heart. Because a cowardly heart we just saw, kind of detestable to him. So there's this balance. So we've got, we can't just climb up on the horse on one side and fall off on the other, right? Like a drunk man. That's a quote from Martin Luther. (laughs) One of my favorites. I say it a lot. Um, And so again, it doesn't say, so there's a balance, right? So what, what does it look like then to walk this out? Look at our last verse which explains in a very thorough but unconventional way, okay? Um, This is going to get kind of raw, pun totally intended. Okay, Colossians uh, chapter 2, verse 11. Here we go. You ready? It's going to give us um, what this looks like to walk it out in Christ. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Okay. Some of you are like, I was already uncomfortable with all the sexuality and abortion talk. Now things are getting really weird. You're talking about circumcision? Yeah, it says it three times in there. It's a circumcision, circumcision. Like, the imagery here is intentional. You can't get around it. Like, I'd love to just kind of avoid this one, but though it's a bit uncomfortable, yeah, we're going to go there. You know why? Because we've come this far, why not, right? So here we go. Circumcision is when you take a man, a little boy's baby maker, and you cut off the excess flesh around it. 
This imagery is intentional. It wants to give you, it's trying to give you a detailed image of what is happening here. And so it was a sign in the Old Testament of a covenant between God and his people. It was the physical sign that pointed to the spiritual reality that they were different, that they were set apart for a greater glory and a mission, and that through their family and bloodline, God would bring about salvation and redemption to the whole world. So the imagery is clear. Cut off the excess flesh for the sake of your mission to glorify God. That's what it was telling them. That's what it was declaring. So the point here is that in order to walk this out in Christ, we're going to need to die to self, to put to death that which is carnal or fleshly, to cut it off. And this isn't performed by a doctor. This is, this is the spiritual circumcision of your heart, which has been performed by God himself, the great physician, as he removes you from your own carnality to put to death that which is motivated by the flesh. You guys remember the pride-shame spectrum we talked about a couple weeks ago? So basically, for those of you that don't remember or weren't here, pride-shame spectrum is basically if you've got pride up here, you've got shame down here, and there's like a line, this is like the spectrum we live on. This is how the world is motivated. This is how the world operates on either pride or shame. You're motivated by either pride of achievement or the shame or the fear of failure. Shame. Pride of achievement, good. Fear of failure, bad. So if you do something good, pride all right, I'm great, right? God must love me because I did so much great stuff, okay? This is my way to salvation, like a tower of Babel, building pride. But if you do something bad, ooh, God hates me. Not miss church, shame. Didn't go to community group, shame, right? But I did, I read my Bible instead, (laughs) ha ha, pride. I prayed at the, you know, bedside Baptist, you know, pride. Um. Or something bad happens to you, right? Something bad happens to you, God must hate you. Shame. You do something good, or or I'm sorry, something good happens to you. Ooh, pride, God must love me. See this? This thing is tormenting. Completely tormenting. God says get off of that paradigm entirely. That spectrum is all based on your ability to be good enough. Guess what? You're not. That's why he had to die for you. That's why he came and lived the life you couldn't live and died the death you deserve to die and conquered that whole thing through the resurrection. And so in that resurrection, he said, I am saying, get off of that and hide yourself in me and in my grace. Jesus says, root yourself in what I've done for you, not in what you can or cannot do. To hide yourself in what I've done for you and what I say about you is what really matters. What I say about you is where your true identity lies, okay? So it's not about what you can or can't do. It's about what's been done for you. Everything else is a response to that, which is thanksgiving and worship. And so immerse yourself in him. Hide yourself in him, in his word, in his presence, in his people, and in his grace. That's what this is saying. Look at verse 12. It says, having been buried with him in baptism. That word baptism is baptismo, which means immersion, okay? Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. This is a spiritual resurrection. One day we will attain a physical one. But that first comes by being buried with him, getting off of this pride-shame mess and hiding ourselves in him. Whom God raised from the dead. 
And so that means we're, again, getting off the ego trips of simply trying to be right and hiding ourselves in the righteousness of Jesus, which allows us to be bold, and it allows us to be loving at the same time. It allows us to speak the truth in love as we operate from the firm foundation of his grace, because people far from God aren't just the enemy, they're the mission. That doesn't mean that we say silly things to wicked people like, you're just perfect the way you are. No, you're not. That's not loving. That's not loving at all. It sounds good at first, but it's simply joining in on the festival burning of the king in effigy. Especially when they're, the, the way they are is hostile to their creator and his image. In fact, that's actually another abomination. Proverbs 17, 15 actually lists that as an abomination, saying, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. That's not loving. And yet, Christ's heart is for that person. This is why the cross. So he doesn't excuse the behavior, but he did die to redeem it. And of course, that doesn't mean that we don't celebrate and praise God when something like Roe v. Wade is overturned, but there is a difference between gloating and celebrating. So we communicate truth in a way that points to our Redeemer rather than ourselves. Again, you can speak truth in a sinful way, but you can also be silent in a sinful way when truth needs to be spoken. So discernment and tact matter, and it all requires us to have complete dependence upon the Spirit of God to speak the truth in love. To win the person, not just the argument. It's compassion without, without compromise. Because true compassion doesn't lead to cowardice. It leads to courage and bold, loving testimony of what is true. 1 Corinthians 13, 1. Without love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So independence from the tyranny of sin happens when we fully rely on Jesus for our freedom. This isn't just how we're saved, it's how we live and how we testify, right? This is how we fulfill the commission, is in reliance and dependence upon him. That's how the captives are liberated. We don't do it our way, we do it his way. Again, true liberty is found in total dependence upon Jesus Christ as Savior and King. Let's pray.